We've been talking about this prayer of David, which is a theme in the Bible of give us an undivided heart. The Bible works with covenants, which are vows, which are relationships, which are always and forever backed by God's fidelity and requiring ours in return. And of course, the storyline of the Bible is that that fidelity that God has shown to us and asked for us to respond to him in like terms is constantly not being done. We're constantly wandering off, constantly running after other allegiances and loyalties. And so you find in the scriptures various ways of talking about his aspirations for us. Love the Lord with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, and your whole self. Everything you got, love him. That's wholeheartedness. You have David praying, give us an undivided heart. You have, as Corby preached last week, I believe, I haven't heard it, but I saw the title. You have the idea of purity of heart, which Kierkegaard said is to will one thing. It's the pure in heart who will see God. The pure in heart are those who are unalloyed in their loyalty and their allegiance, who say to God, I'm all in. And James has his way of talking about the opposite of an undivided heart, and it's called being double-minded. In this book of James, this epistle written by the brother of Jesus, it starts out at the beginning saying, consider it joy when you encounter trials of many kinds, when you don't know what to do, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts, he says, is a double-minded person, a two-souled person, not like choose, but S-O-U-L-E-D. He has two wills. He has two different allegiances. He wants two things at the same time. That person is unstable, he says. That person is tossed about by the wind. And so he goes on and he talks about the kinds of divisions that happens. We can have that same double-mindedness with our tongues, with our speech. On the one hand, we can praise God on Sunday morning and sing, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then when we walk out of here, we can southernly stab somebody that we've been syrupy sweet to in the service. He says that shouldn't be. That's a double-mindedness. He goes on to say if you want to have a good life, and that's James 3, you should show it by your humility, by your wisdom. If you have selfish ambition and envy, don't boast about it or deny the truth, he says. And then he comes here to James chapter 4. He says, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? He's addressing a universal phenomenon It's indigenous to our hearts and ubiquitous in the world, and that is frictiousness. Fighting, quarreling, getting cattywampus with another, getting sideways with your spouse or with your kids or with your parents or with your boss or with another race or with a political party. What causes these? And he's going to come back again and again to the fact that the cause of all kinds of division, the cause of all kinds of disobedience, is ultimately a result of double-mindedness. That's why he's going to say, purify yourselves, double-minded. 
Because you can't want two things at once, not mutually exclusive things. Have you ever tried, for instance, have you ever tried to watch your children and get some work done at the same time when your children were very little? I'm talking about little enough to where if you take your eyes off them for three seconds, they'll either have burned down the house or electrocuted themselves, or they're going to be standing on top of your chimney. That kind of watching. Well, so here's what happens. I think this is what happened to me when I was a young father with younger kids, is if I were sitting there trying to work on something, trying to finish some emails, trying to write something, and they're there moving about, I just stay agitated and frustrated at everything. Because they're constantly interrupting me. Of course, that's what I'm supposed to be doing is watching them. But I'm trying to get some work done. So I can neither get the work done nor can I watch them. And I'm just frustrated and hate everything. And that's the way a lot of people live. Divided. In fact, it's why Jesus would say it's actually impossible. It's impossible to be my disciple if you don't hate you know, this is Luke 14 if you want to look it up sometime. If you don't hate your mama and your daddy and your wife and your husband, if you don't hate them, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. And, of course, he don't mean hate them like be ugly to them and wish bad things happen to them that they, that they trip when they're on their way to home. He doesn't mean hate like that. He means if you think that there's something more valuable in your life, than fellowship with Jesus Christ. If you think there's something more valuable in your life than being with the one for whom we're going to be, with whom we're going to be for eternity, then you can't be his disciple. None of it will make sense. You'll be trying for two different things at the same time. You'll be pursuing your own pleasure and then kind of halfway pursuing his pleasure and doing neither. You'll be frustrated. Conflicted people are paralyzed. They can't do anything. Or they're constantly agitated. And James knows that. So that's what he says. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Are you curious? Are you curious? Why do we fight so much in our houses? Why do we fight so much at work? Why is every church, I just got an email from a friend. Things were going well and now they're not. Every church in my mind is on the precipice of becoming four churches. They're just one big decision away. What color carpet should we get? Boom, you got three new churches. All you got to do is have some decision that matters to disparate parties disproportionately much. And that's what James is talking about. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's kind of a rhetorical question because he goes right into it. He doesn't give you time to answer the question. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? One of the things that he would have you do in looking at your life is to say, when you're in conflict, self-suspicion is your first tact. When you're in conflict, self-suspicion is your first tact. Because your normal tact is to assume for certain that all the ailments in your life are due to that twit that you married. That ridiculous man, that nagging woman, if those kids would just listen to me, if my parents would quit being so overbearing, it's always somebody else's fault. 
What causes fights and quarrels? Don't you know that they come from desires that battle within you? Here's what your desires are. You want something, but you don't get it. Your self-suspicion should lead you to ask this question. What is it right now in this fight where I'm, I'm criticizing another? When, I, when you start wagging your finger, you know you're in, you're in this realm that he's talking about. When you start gossiping about somebody else behind their back, you know you're in this realm. When you start ranting on Facebook, you know that you're in this realm. That's a joke to act like I don't know what it is. You're saying, I want something, but I don't get it. The question is, I got self-suspicion that says, what is it? What is it that might be wrong with me here? Am I sure that I'm reading this right? And then, what is it that I'm not getting? What is my unmet want? What am I not getting right now? See, this is all going to lead to this idea that you're, James would say, that you're, you're wanting something from somebody that's driven by your preoccupation with yourself. And you're deciding, as we often do, that we know the best remedies for our ailments. We know the best cures for what is wrong with us. We know what is best for our lives. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight, just to repeat himself. So this is the normal human law. I don't have to tell you to understand that. And it affects us not just in not having what we want, but it also makes us, he says, covet and fight. And earlier he talks about envy and selfish ambition. A few weeks ago I was driving hastily for the first time in my life. It was so scary. I'm trying to do better. But we were trying to get to a game, so this was very important, in Knoxville. And there was a traffic jam. One of the main problems about driving is that there are other people on the road. There's this traffic jam, and I made a mistake. I did not obey. I did not submit myself to Waze, the app, because I was on the phone, and I made an error. I could have blamed the phone. It was my fault. My fault. I should have gone around. I didn't. So then I was stuck in this sort of dystopian, apocalyptic scene where people were just seated in their cars. And I'm thinking, we got to be there. And it doesn't look as if that guy's starting to eat his tire. That's what it looked like. People were going to start eating the seats of their cars. I saw one guy getting out of his car, going up to an 18-wheeler, doing this to him, walking down the highway. That's how crazy I had gotten. So naturally, I realized, hey, there were six-tenths of a mile to the next exit. What I'll do, I'll just just slide over to the hazard lane because I have a hazard. And I'll drive down because we've got to get to this game. But what was so awesome to me, and by awesome I mean not awesome, was that there were not just one but multiple big rigs and station wagons, all sorts and varieties of vehicles and people who had decided that they wanted everybody else to be just as miserable as they were. So they had done this with their trucks. They were just out. You weren't going to get by. They just wanted to make sure if I got to stay here, you got to stay here. That's a great definition of envy. You want everybody else to be just as miserable as you are. Hey, if I can't have it, I'm going to burn down the place. That's what happens. We get so crazy sometimes when our our wants aren't met. That baby feels it. And he says, you quarrel and you fight. The issue is you're not getting what you want. Don't you realize 
underneath so many of your arguments, underneath so much of your gossip, underneath so much of your criticism, underneath so much of your complaining is this sense that I know what's best for me and it's not happening. And you might start to think, well, but we're Christians. Who are we leaving out of the equation there? Oh, yes, God, who generously gives to all without finding fault. God, from whom all good gifts come. And don't change. He doesn't change like shifting shadows, James says in chapter 1. And that's where James goes. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. When you have these unmet issues, one of the problems is you're not asking God for them. Has it occurred to you? It's easy for me, I realize, how many times I'm in the middle of something and I go, oh, yeah. I'm linked up with the father of the universe who's very wealthy. He's not scrounging around for gas money. He's helpful. He's told me to call on him. He said I can do nothing apart from him, but I forget, and you forget. You do not have because you do not ask God. C.S. Lewis, who else? And the magician's nephew, there's this great scene where Diggory is hungry. I'm hungry, says Diggory, because he was. Well, tuck in, says Fledge, taking in a big mouthful of grass as a grazing horse would do. And then he raised his head, still chewing with bits of grass, sticking out of his mouth like whiskers on each side. Come on, you two, don't be shy. There's plenty for all of us. And Diggory, with some imagined level of contempt, says... We can't eat grass. But, you know, because he's a man. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Says Fledge, continuing to speak with his mouth full. Well, um, I don't know quite what you'll do then. But this very good grass is here for you. And Polly and Diggory stared at one another in dismay. Well, says Diggory in a huff, I do think someone might have arranged about our meals. And Fledge, this horse. You know, because in Narnia, horses can talk. That would be neat. I'm sure Aslan would have if you'd asked him, says Fledge. But Polly says, well, wouldn't he, wouldn't he know without being asked? And Fledge says, I've no doubt that he would. Still with his mouth full. But I've a sort of idea that he likes to be asked. We're hungry. There's nothing but grass to eat. Well, you, you, you probably should have asked Aslan about that. Wouldn't Aslan know we need to eat? Well, yeah, of course he would, but he likes to be asked, I think. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus never taught us how to hear a sermon. He never taught us how to give a sermon. He taught us how to pray. And James says, some of the stuff that you want, you want quiet for your soul? You want some kind of satisfaction? Do you need things resourcefully? Do you have aching wants? Are you demanding that everybody else come through for you and then creating a nightmare of a situation? Or are you saying, Lord, will you do this for me? You do not have because you do not ask God, the God who likes to be asked. And when you do ask, he says, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He does clarify some of your unanswered prayer. Sometimes you just don't even think about God. 
And some of the times, you bring God into the equation and it clarifies things. You start to say, wait a second, okay. Is, does God exist merely to help me realize my intentions and dreams? Someone is my rival, so I ask God to please snipe them. Someone is my competitor, so I ask God to make all their checks bounce. Well, maybe he's not interested in that as so much as you are. Maybe he has different intentions than you. James says sometimes when you pray and ask, what you're doing is you're actually asking God to help you be unfaithful to him. Because in the very next verse, he says, you adulterous people. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. But when you do ask, you don't get because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And he says, you adulterers. In other words, to put it you know, more crassly, my favorite way, God isn't going to help you commit adultery on him. Any more than... I'm hoping if you said to your wife, will you help me find a girlfriend? She would hit you in the nose. She should. It's a ridiculous request. It's an awful want. And God is not interested because he loves you, because he's interested in your flourishing. He is not interested in your departure. You know, there's one place where the Apostle Paul speaks about 1 Corinthians 1 speaks about being utterly and unbearably crushed. He says, in our hearts, we even felt the sentence of death. But these things happen that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. These things happened. They were permitted into our lives that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, one of the questions you have to ask yourself constantly is, whose pleasure am I after here? Sometimes it doesn't even cross our mind when we go out to work in the day, work for the day. When we wake up, we don't think, what would God have me do today? What does Christ, who wants to resource me, who's promised to give me life and life to the full, who's already granted me eternal life, I have no fear of death, no fear of outcomes. Outcomes belong to him. How may I please the one for whom I was meant to please? Those things don't cross our minds all the time. How would I please God in this situation? They don't cross our minds. But God isn't going to help us run away and what the scriptures call here, be friends of the world. And when he talks about world, it doesn't just mean like the people of Chattanooga are, you know, like, yeah, so God hates California and hopes it falls off into the ocean. He's not talking about that. He's talking about this whole system. Because in some places it says God loves the world, right? That's why he sent Jesus. He loves the world and he hates the world. He hates the world that's the world's system that's opposed to him, that's rejected him, that's trying to put up barriers against him. He is against that. And so the scriptures say, I'm not going to help you to cheat on me. You ought to think about that when you're praying. And then lastly, he says this, because God envies intensely, his jealousy is healing. He says, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
when you start to realize, oh, I've been pursuing only my own pleasure. I don't even have God in the radar screen. I, I've made him like, like a pastor I know who's told me at weddings, people who want to get married in unbiblical ways, he'll say to folks, I don't want to be decorative flowers at your wedding. So if you need somebody to do that, there are lots of people that can marry you, but I'm going to marry you as a representative of Christ and according to his, according to his ways. I don't want to be decorative flowers. And God's saying, I don't want to be decorative flowers of your life. I'm not decoration. You can't shoehorn me in. I'm meant for you to center around. That's what life is. And so when you realize that, you'll have these moments where you come to your senses. That's one of the ways the Bible talks about repentance. You come to your senses. You realize suddenly, what was I thinking? You didn't know what you were thinking. It suddenly becomes clear to you. That means you've been acted on by divine kindness. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's God's kindness that makes James say, you adulterers, because he's hoping you won't keep being that. That you'll say, ah, I've not really listened to God. I've not really paid him any mind. I've been ignoring him. I've structured my life, in fact, to make sure, whether I realize it or not, that he doesn't have any part of it. So I need to start by submitting myself to God. Just placing myself under him and saying, okay, you get to be king and not me. And then by doing that, you're resisting the devil. I'm not going to be captive to his snares anymore. And then he says, come near, and he'll come near to you. He invites you. The divine kindness invites you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And he dares people to believe it. Have you ever given yourself to coming near? To saying, I want to believe this so much that if this ain't true, none of it can be true. I'm going to give myself to him. I'm going to come to him. I'm going to search the scriptures. I'm going to pray to him. I'm going to, I'm going to yield my life to him in as much as I'm able, give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of him at this very moment. That's what purifying your hearts is for double-minded people like us. It's saying, I want one allegiance, but you're going to have to give it to me. Malcolm Gladwell tells a story about Wilt Chamberlain. Does anyone know what sport Wilt Chamberlain played? Good one. Funny. It's too hot to be funny. I've tried. It didn't work. Wilt Chamberlain played basketball. Right. And Wilt Chamberlain was 7'1", 275 pounds, big as an oak tree, but as Gladwell says, graceful as a ballerina. He's very eloquent. But he says the greatest basketball game that was ever played was in March the 2nd, 1962 in, Philadelphia, in uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania. Do we have somebody here from Hershey or near there, near Lancaster? Yeah. So does anybody know what happened that night? 4,000 people were there, the Philadelphia Warriors and the New York Knicks. He did something that's never been done before, again, before or since. He scored 100 points. 100 points. This is, not a, this is not about basketball. So even if you hate basketball or sports, it's a phenomenal feat. Michael Jordan never did that. It's 100 points in a game. Also remarkably, he hit 28 free throws in that game. Also remarkable. Because he was a terrible free throw shooter. 
But that season, in 1961-1962, he averaged 50 points a game. Nobody's ever done that. Nobody will ever do it again, I don't think. Not even Steph Curry, I don't believe. The greatest basketball player playing right now, boys. <laughs> this is not a fight in our house. Nobody will ever average 50 points a game. But you know what he, what he did, though, after that? That season, that, that game where he hit 28 three th- free throws, you know what he did? How he shot his free throws? Granny style. There was one other player that did that named Rick Barry. He's also in the Hall of Fame. He was the best free throw shooter ever. Rick Barry had seasons where he missed nine or ten free throws the entire season. Shot 94% from the free throw line. That's like 9.4 made shots out of ten if you don't do percentages well. But Wilt Chamberlain, Wilt Chamberlain had Shaquille O'Neal disease. Shaquille O'Neal was also an amazing player, but there was a strategy in the NBA called Shack Attack, Hack-a-Shack, Hack-a-Shack, which is where Shaquille gets the ball, and you know he's going to score, so you just pummel him. You get six guys fouling him, because when he gets 15 feet away from the basket with no one guarding him, he has no prayer of doing anything but donating a rebound to you. He is not going to make it. He can't make it. I don't understand how, but you might not be able to make it if you were over seven feet tall, eye to eye with the basket, trying to shoot like that. You still wouldn't want to play him in one-on-one. But Wilt Chamberlain had one season where he switched to granny style. And he shot a higher percentage than he had ever shot in his life. But the very next season, he dipped back down. And Gladwell makes the argument, his coach had made the argument, if you would learn to hit your free throws, we would never lose a game. Never lose a game, his coach said to Wilt Chamberlain. But Chamberlain was asked about this. Why did you switch back? After this amazing season, you're hitting all these free throws granny style. Why'd you switch back? And he says, I know I was wrong, but I didn't want to look like a sissy. I look like a sissy. Do you know how many people shoot granny style? Rick Barry's son for the College of Charleston shoots granny style and one Nigerian guy. So you either got to be from somewhere out of the country or you got to be the son of the Hall of Famer who shot granny style to get away with this. No other players shoot this way because they don't want to look like sissies. It's more mechanically sound. It's easier. You get softer touch. It's well demonstrated. It's a better way to shoot. And nobody will do it. And Wilt Chamberlain, who could have been the greatest, the absolute undeniable greatest scorer of all time, wouldn't change his style because he didn't want to look like a sissy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and in due time, he will lift you up. One of the things that we do is we come to him, and we say, you know, we've been way too concerned with whether we look like a sissy or where we look like a wackadoo, or whether we are going to be spoken of poorly, or we're worried that you're not going to give us what we want. And God says, why don't you just humble yourself and see? Why don't you just humble yourself and see what I the one who has promised life and life abundant. Your God has healing jealousy for you. He's envious of your affection because he's after your life. Don't run away from him. Run toward him. Ask him for what you need. Tell him what you're not. Humble yourself before him regularly and he will lift you up.